Well, it's good to see you all this morning. Uh, we are continuing in our series through the book of Psalms, and um, we are, for the next few weeks, we are going to be in kind of um, a praise psalms, which I don't know about you, but I'm happy to be in praise psalms. Um, it's just wonderful, wonderful things. And that's the beauty about the book of Psalms, as I've shared before and I'll share it again, is that, that it gives us this whole range of emotions that we as human beings experience not only in our relationships with each other, we experience highs and lows in our relationships with each other. Well, that is also true in our relationship with God as well. And I love how the Psalms reflect the wide range of emotions that we experience with God. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If there are times when you are angry at God, that's okay. That's okay. If there are times that you are joyful before God, that's okay. If there are times that you are happy before God, that's okay. If there are times that you have virtually, you know, just no feelings at all, that you are indifferent, that's okay. In other words, as I've shared before and I'll share it again, feelings are not wrong, okay? If you've ever heard someone tell you, well, you shouldn't feel that way, that is not a good thing to say. Feelings are feelings. You can feel whatever way you want to. Feelings are neither right or wrong. Feelings are feelings. Here's what's right or wrong. How you act on those feelings can be right or wrong. Can we just make that distinction? It's okay to feel whatever it is you are feeling before God. Okay? It's okay. He will not smite you okay he welcomes it if he did not welcome it we would not have this book of psalms we just would not have this as a guide for how we as people can love god which is really in many ways what the book of psalms is all about how can i love god here's the book of psalms gives us a great idea of how we can do so i love how one theologian and pastor gordon fee described the Psalms, and he said this, the Psalms, like no other literature, lifts us to a position where we can commune with God regardless of what we are feeling, regardless of where we are at. We can commune with God, capturing a sense of the greatness of his kingdom and a sense of what living with him for eternity will be like. I think that quote for me I think paints a great picture of the kind of idea and a kind of reality that we are going to experience and what also this Psalm 8 that we're going to look at this morning talks about and expresses. Um, psalm 8 is a beautiful psalm. It has been the genesis of many praise songs. In fact, when I read the Psalm 8, I, I'm going to date myself. And by the way, for those of you who have been here a long time, even longer than I have, I just want to let you know I am getting older, okay? I'm, get, I'm, I'm probably no longer that, that young boy or that man or whatever that was first here, okay? And so, for instance, when it starts out and says, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your reputation or your name throughout the earth? I immediately thought of that praise song, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How many of you heard that? Okay, some of, all, some of you all back in the 80s, right? We are in the way back machine. Um, that is one of the inspirations 
<laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, that is one of the inspirations. This psalm is one of the inspirations for that song like that. It is just, it is a beautiful, beautiful psalm. And it gives us a glimpse of God's presence in his creation. It is just awesome. In addition to that, I think this psalm poses an incredibly important question. It's not the point of the psalm. It is a point. It is not the main point of the psalm. But it is a question I think that nonetheless, I think this psalm poses. And it's a simple question of this. Who am I? Who am I? Now, voluminous books, how do you like that word, have been written about identity. Maybe you have read many of these books. Who am I? Trying to search for who you are. Maybe you have taken many a personality tests, whatever they may be, to discover who you are, to discover how do you behave, to discover what it is you're passionate about, what it is that you like, what it is you don't like, how it is you interact with people. Those are wonderful things. Don't get me wrong. I say that to say this. Now, even scripture tells us who we are, and maybe you have heard sermons about who you are in Christ. I've even shared sermons about who we are in Jesus Christ. And today, I'm going to do it again. <laughs> but from a different perspective, perhaps, than maybe one that we've not heard before. Maybe, perhaps, there might be some things shared out of this passage that maybe we have not heard before about who we are but nonetheless, I think, are really important for us to understand. And here's the thing about what the backdrop of this question is going to be answered in. The backdrop of this question of who we are, the backdrop is creation itself. Who are we in the backdrop or in the midst or in the context of God's creation? Who are we? Because that is a valid, important question to understand who we are. And so, if you've ever wondered in the backdrop of creation itself, who am I? Today, I hope to kind of maybe answer that question. Not fully, but in some ways answer that question. Because it's an important question for us to ask, and I think it's an important question for us to attempt to answer, which is what I will try to do this morning out of this passage. Are you with me? So let's dive in. And let's discover at least a little bit, it's not the fullness of who we are, but at least a good picture of who we are, of who we are according to Psalmate. Now, let me just explain Psalmate real quick. Psalmate, out of the collection of Psalms, 150 of them, remember that, Psalms are divided up into five specific books. And the first book we are in, it's Psalms 1 through 41. That's the first book, okay? Within that first book, there are a collection of 14 psalms that are very, very specific to very uh, situations that are happening here. And so the psalm starts out with this declarative statement that, guess what? God realizes our world is not the way it should be. God realizes that things are messed up. That there are problems in our world, that there is brokenness in our world, that there is evil in our world, that there are things that are happening to others, to us, that should not be happening. There's injustice, there's oppression, all of this kind of stuff. God acknowledges that in the first two Psalms of this book. And he says, I'm going to do something about it. 
I'm going to send a savior to deal with all this. Okay? Then what happens is David, after that, comes in with Psalms 3 through 7, and he says, man, I'm being oppressed. Things are not going well for me. He is king, and things are not going well. I am powerless because he's on the run. I'm being oppressed. People are against me. I have nowhere to turn, and, and it is just awful. And then, Psalms 9 through 14, David now also says, I am with those who are also oppressed. I am with those who are also powerless. I am with those who are also weak. And then, Psalm 8 sits right at the center of that reality that David is facing and that many others are facing. And Psalm 8 kind of stands right at the center and has a completely declarative statement to say, guess what? This is who you are. This is who you are. And so it's an encouragement psalm. Okay? It's an encouragement psalm. So that's why I think this psalm is so important about asking who we are. So here's the first idea of who we are. You are significant in your purpose. We're going to talk about our purpose in just a minute. But you are significant in your purpose. Here's how psalm starts out. It says this. O Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your reputation or name throughout the earth. You reveal your majesty in the heavens above. By the way, this first verse and the ninth verse at the end of the psalm are the same verse. It's called an ecclusio, okay? It's called an ecclusio. I know, fancy. Gives you an idea of what the psalm is all about. If it starts the same and ends the same, that's the point of the psalm. So the real point of the psalm is to declare how marvelous our Lord is. And there's a reason why David does this, because he's realizing who he is. And one of the things he realizes is that he has a significant purpose as to why he's here. And then it goes on in verse 2 to describe what that purpose is. And he says, and, and David writes this, From the mouths of children and nursing babies, you have ordained praise on account of your adversaries, so that you might put an end to the vindictive enemy. That's a lot. That's a lot. Let me share it with you in the message paraphrase, because I think Eugene Peterson encapsulates kind of the meaning of this. He says this, Nursing infants gurgle choruses about you. Toddlers shout the songs that drown out enemy talk and silence atheist babble. What in the world is David talking about here? Are you to tell me, Dan, that every time a baby cries, that baby's praising the Lord? Yes, possibly, absolutely. Are you telling me every time a baby coos and, and makes all sorts of joyous laughter and whatever else, that that baby is praising the Lord? Yes, one could make a very good argument about that, absolutely. Are you telling me, Dan, that children who do children things, they laugh, they play, they do all sorts of stuff, that they are praising the Lord? Yes! Yes! In other words, what David is writing here is he realizes I'm being oppressed, I'm, I'm weak, I am powerless, I, and there are people who are saying the same thing, and God reaffirms to David, guess what? It is the weak, it is the powerless that are the ones that praise me. It, there's the weak and the powerless. Those are the ones I'm choosing. 
Those are the ones I'm choosing to do a great work. And he cites babies and children as examples of this. Those who are most vulnerable, those who are most at their weakest point, that's who he says, guess what? You are the ones who are going to silence the enemies. You are the ones who are going to deal with the oppression. You are the ones who are going to have victory over those who are after you. I am choosing you. You have a purpose. You have a purpose. Now think about this. This makes sense if you think about it a little bit more. What did Jesus say the kingdom of God is like? Right? Do you remember that story? There were several of them, right? The, 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 the disciples are, are you know, with Jesus, and Jesus is all of a sudden having all these kids come to him, and the disciples are trying to shoo the kids away, right? Kids are annoying. They're germ-filled, you know, bastions of diseases and stuff like that, you know? They wipe your nose, they wipe their nose on you and all that kind of stuff. They smell at times too, right? They're loud. They're obnoxious. They have no boundaries, right? They just come up to you and say whatever, whatever it is, right? I mean, they, they, you know, whatever it is. And so the disciples are trying to shoo these kids away from Jesus. Don't bother Jesus. He's God. He doesn't have time for you. And Jesus rebukes his disciples and says, do not hinder any of these little ones from coming to me. For what? They belong to the kingdom of God. And he goes on and he says this, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you've got to be a child. You've got to be weak. You've got to be powerless if you want to be a part of my kingdom. That's a qualification, church. That's a qualification. There is something about, isn't it, about sometimes that childlike spirit that is phenomenal. Right? I just, I love it. I had, a, I had a child come up to me today talking with a couple of adults. And a child came up to me and he put his hand on my shoulder and he says, Pastor Dan, I need to talk to you. Really serious. I'm like, ooh. I better, I better go and talk to this person. I, it must be serious. Maybe he needs counseling or something like that. I don't know, right? I've never known a child need, need counseling this young. You're very well aware of your emotions if that's the case. And so he tells me, he goes, I was fishing yesterday caught a big fish. Is that it? Yep. Awesome. <laughs> you got no other issues? None. I caught a big fish. Awesome. Did you fry him up? No, I couldn't do that. Wasn't allowed. Okay. Maybe next time. Maybe next time. It's just beautiful, right? Listen, there is something about that childlike, you know, experience that is just my word. Is there ever a time when you just want to have fun and go down the slide that you see the kids going down? Are there times that you just want to jump in the pool because you see the kids jumping in the pool and having fun and splashing and just no care in the world except just to have fun? Let me just tell you this. It's okay at times to indulge that childlike spirit because it's a reminder that our very essence, we too are like children. We are powerless and we are weak even if we don't think so. And because of that, 
we have this significant purpose. It is through the weak and the powerless that God will change the world. That God will rid the evil that is here. That God will take care of these things that are, that are like injustice and oppression and all these other things that are just so wrong and mess up our world. It is through the weak and the powerless that God will transform the earth. And by the way, that sort of thinking, that sort of pattern is all throughout Scripture. Let me just give you one of the earliest ones from Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verses 6 through 10. And this is uh, Moses speaking to the people of Israel, and he says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and he has chosen you to be his people, prized above all others on the face of the earth. And by the way, you were chosen not because you were numerous than all the other people that the Lord favored and chose you. For in fact, you were the least numerous of all the peoples. You were the smallest. You were the weakest. You were the most insignificant, dare I say. Rather, it is because of his love for you and his faithfulness to the promise he solemnly vowed to your ancestors that the Lord brought you out with great power, redeeming you from the place of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We have a significant purpose. We have a significant purpose. God chooses the weak and the powerless to realize that purpose, which leads me to my next one. I bet you maybe not have heard this about who we are. And here's another one, the third, second one rather. You and I are lowly by design. We are lowly by design. Take a look at verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 8. David, when I look up at the heavens, which your fingers have made, and see the moon and the stars, what you set in place, of what importance is the human race that you should notice them? Seriously. Right? By the way, human race there, there are two words in Hebrew so far that deal with human, humanity, humankind, human race. One is nos. You'll forget that word. It's okay. Nos. Which, that's, that's this word here, human race, nos, which means collectively. It means grouping together. It means all of humanity. Who is all of humanity, David asks, that you should be mindful of them. When you look at the stars and the planets and the heavens and the celestial galaxies and all of those things that are out there that are ginormous, they're huge, vast. Do you know that our universe is still expanding? It's still expanding. It hasn't shrunk. We send things out into space. There was a satellite. I was very, very, I don't think I was even born yet. They sent a satellite out. I even think it has Jimmy Carter's, he was president. I might have been born, I was, I was very young. But nonetheless, out into space. It just finally left our galaxy. It's out there, just chugging along. It is just huge. Huge, huge, huge. And David asks, in light of that, why would you even pay attention to us? We're so small. We're so tiny. And he goes on and he says this. Of what importance is mankind? Now, this word, mankind, is the one that's probably most familiar to us, and that word is Adam or Adam. And that word is class, meaning the class of people. One is collective, all of us. This one is class, where we come from. We're sons, or we're, we're, we're children. And, and in some ways, we are uh, in here, this class of sinful, broken people. Not only are we just 
collectively all human beings, but we're also broken, sinful human beings. Why would you even pay attention to us in light of your creation? It's so huge. It's so beautiful. It is so awesome. And he's right. I mean, you think about the creation story. He's thinking about Genesis where God spoke things into existence and he placed all the stars and the heavens and the planets exactly where he wanted them. And then he created the fish in the sea and the birds of the air and everything that moves and all that kind of stuff. Have you ever thought about how insignificant we are in light of all that is out there? Has it ever once occurred to you that we are this tiny little planet that is revolving in this one galaxy among almost innumerable galaxies, and that we are possibly, so far, we haven't discovered any other life, so so far there is nothing else out there except us on this tiny little planet revolving around this star, a part of a galaxy that is just one among who knows how many, and that's it. Does that ever freak you out? Does it ever freak you out right now that we're spinning and we're moving, all of that kind of stuff, that we are, I mean, none of you are getting motion sickness <laughs> at all? I mean, just think about that. And by the way, these planets and stars, they're made from gases and rocks and just unbelievable materials. And then David remembers about how we were formed. Do you remember what we're from? Dirt. We're from dirt. Now, don't get me wrong. There's something unique about us, but that's not the point. The point is, out of everything that he could have made us out of, that God could have made us out of, he made us out of dirt. That's it. There's a reason why many theologians believe that is significant. There's many scientific reasons, I'm sure, why that's the case. But one reason, theologically at least, is the reason why we are most likely made out of, uh, out of dessert, dirt, <laughs> dessert. That wouldn't be bad either. Out of dirt is to remind us of our position. We are lowly. We are insignificant. If you think about even the animals that surround us, they're really good at what they do, aren't they? Birds are really good at flying. Fish are really good at swimming. Killer whales are really good at killing kind of thing. I mean, they're really intelligent. I mean, there are creatures. Do you, we haven't even explored all of our, the depths of our oceans yet. Do you know that we're discovering new creatures every single year on this earth? Do you know that we're, they come out with a new list every single year of new creatures they've, or new animals that they have discovered. It is crazy. It is unbelievable. And yet, if it's, I'd love to, if they could speak, if we could have conversations with them, if we could have conversations with the planets or with the stars or with whatever, the galaxies, and we could say, hey, you know, what are you made up of? Oh, I'm made up of helium and all these sorts of wonderful gases and these tough rocks, and I live for thousands, if not millions of years, and I have been here a long, long time, and I will be here for a long, long time. And then they ask us, what are you made of? Dirt. Oh, yeah, and by the way, I don't live very long. Oh, yeah, and by the way, I don't survive outside of a very, very thin layer of existence in our atmosphere. If I go too high, I'll die. If I go too low, I'll die. i got to stay right here. 
in this very thin area of existence on our planet. We are incredibly frail. David, I think, recognizes this. We are lowly by design. We are made from dirt, if for no other reason to be reminded that we are not the most powerful beings out there. We are not the most strongest, most you know, uh, endurable beings out there. There are things out there, planets out there, stars out there, animals out there that are far better, far faster, far you know, deadlier, if you will, than we ever could be. We are incredibly frail, incredibly frail. And we don't live long, right? We don't live long. How's that for identity? We're made of dirt. Oh, and by the way, we return as dirt. From dirt we came to dirt we will return. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. We are lowly by design. Finally, David says this, or recognizes this. You and I are unique still in all of God's creation. While we might be lowly in design, you and I are still unique in all of God's creation. Listen to what David writes here in verses 5 through 9. He says this. You have made them, that's us, by the way, a little less than the heavenly beings. Now, this word heavenly beings has caused some consternation among theologians because we have nothing better to do. <laughs> heavenly beings, that word there is Elohim in Hebrew. Elohim. Elohim means God. But for some reason, we struggle with the fact that, well, we're kind of, are we like God? Yes! But there are some who have a little consternation with that, so we say heavenly beings which we interpret as angels, that sort of thing. That is, in my opinion, not what that passage means. What that passage means, and if you have a Bible with you, open to it. Here's what I would invite you to do. It's okay if you do this. You can write in your Bible. I would encourage you either do one of two things. You can cross that phrase out, heavenly beings, or parentheses next to it, God. And then it would read like this. You have made humans a little less than you, God. And then he goes on and he says this, yet you appoint them, or you crowned mankind with honor and majesty. In other words, we are given the same traits, the same divine attributes that God has, we also have. Okay? And then he goes on and he says this, um, and you appoint them to rule over your creation. You have placed everything under their authority, including all the sheep and cattle, as well as the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that moves through the currents of the seas. In other words, we are unique in the fact that we are like God. We, have, we are made in his image. We have his same divine attributes. And we have his same authority. We can rule. He has given us authority over his creation. You mean to tell me that those of us who are significant in our purpose, who are lowly by design and unique in all of God's creation, he has chosen us, weak, frail people, to be like him and to have dominion over his creation. Yep, that's what I'm telling you. That's what I'm telling you. 
And what I think David realizes in these moments is that I'm being oppressed and I'm, I'm like those who are also being oppressed and who are powerless and weak. And God stands in the center and says, and yet I have chosen you, those who are powerless and weak, those who seem to think that they are, there's no hope. I have chosen you to be the ones to change the world, to bear my message. I have chosen you to do that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29 says this, But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise. And God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing, to set aside what is regarded as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. Hear me on this. I think this is really important. This is the point of my message. If you hear nothing else, I hope you hear this. You and I, we all carry that same identity. All of us carry that same identity. We are significant in our purpose. We are lowly by design. And we are unique out of all of God's creation. And the way we are unique not only out of all, all of God's creation, but also out of all the world as well. And when I mean the world, I mean everyone else who doesn't know Jesus. Everyone else who wields power in a way that we understand and accept and have come to just, you know, okay, that's just the way it is. How they wield power. By using it to benefit themselves and not others. By using it to oppress others. By using it to get their own way, etc., etc., etc. We stand in the midst of that in our uniqueness, in our design, and in our purpose to display God's power in a way that is very different, and that is by serving others. That is by going out and not lording our power, whatever it is we may have, whatever God has given us, and to say, you will do what I tell you to do because God has given me that power and I'm here by God's divine right. But rather to go out and with a towel and a basin metaphorically and to say, how can I serve you? God's power is displayed greatly and perhaps its greatest display of God's power is displayed when we serve one another. If you want to see God's power See how people serve each other. See how Christians serve each other and those even who are not Christians. If you want to see God's greatest demonstration of his power, it's through serving. It's laying down that power to help others. That's the way the world changes. That's the way God's kingdom comes. That's the way his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. I've shared this, perhaps not in front of you all, but I've shared it with others in groups within our church as well. I believe, sincerely, that the church was never designed to wield power the way that the world wields power. We are really bad at it. And yet there are examples and examples and examples of churches, of pastors, 
of church leaders who have wielded the power that God has given them in ways that have benefited themselves and have abused others, including children. And I'm not just talking one aspect. Catholics, Protestants are just as guilty. That we have abused children. And what we, there's an even example, even this week, of a campus ministry, prominent campus ministry, of a known person who was convicted of crimes against children who was allowed to continue to serve in ministry. And not only that, the leaders intentionally directed children to this person. Well, we can't, you know, he's so good. He's so gifted at what he does. God has anointed him. Oh, no, he has not. He might have been at one point, but that, that anointing is gone. We are horrible, church, at wielding power the way the world wields power because we were never designed to wield God's power like that. Ever. Ever. It breaks my heart when I see churches, when I see pastors wield power in a way that looks just like the rest of the world. And we wonder why people's hearts aren't changed. And we wonder why people are you know, running away from churches. We wonder why people are, are saying, I want none of this. If this is what God is like, don't, don't include me in that at all. Why people are just leaving churches. Why people are not even bothering to show up at times because of the reputation that churches can have of wielding power in a way that benefits them instead of serving others. That is not... God's power is not his way at all. At all. It just isn't. And yet it breaks my heart when I see Christians and churches champion things and methods that all of a sudden are all about, we've got to go to battle. We've got to go to battle. And what that means is we are at war with others. I heard one commentator was talking about a, a head of a prominent Christian organization in this country who was asked because now this person was going to battle and was really going away, going to battle in the way the world goes to battle and was said, well, what about turning the other cheek? And the guy said to this commentator, well, we only have two cheeks. At which the commentator said, well, actually, technically we have four. <laughs> really? Is that his excuse for going to war? I've, I've turned, turned both cheeks. I've done my duty. Now I've had enough. Everyone out of the pool. Church, let me just say this. If you want to change this world for Jesus Christ, if you truly believe that you want Jesus' kingdom to come, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, the greatest way to make that happen the greatest display of power for that to happen is to serve one another and everyone we encounter and to love them as Christ loves us. He chose us. Not only all of us in here, but all of humanity to display who he is. Let me end this morning with 1 Peter 
Peter writes the following. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want to share with you this morning, if you had any doubts about who you are, I pray this morning there is at least some understanding, maybe even affirmation of who you are. You are Christ's chosen possession. You are Christ's chosen people, called to display his virtues, his power in this world. To do that by serving, by loving, by laying down our lives for others. If you're here today and you had no clue that this is who you can be, that this is who you really are, my hope and my prayer is is that you will embrace it. That you will embrace it. That you say, yes, God, I embrace this identity. This is who I am. This is who you made me to be. But regardless, church, I pray collectively that we would be reminded when we feel oppressed, when we are powerless, when we are weak, that it's in those moments may we be reminded that God has chosen us. God has chosen the weak, the powerless, to display who he is to this world. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I don't always understand your will. And I'm, at times, Jesus, I'll be honest, I am frustrated at your methods. I am frustrated at times why you just simply don't come and just, let's get this over with. Why you don't come on that white horse, but instead you came on a donkey. Father, I pray for every single one of us this morning that we would be reminded and that we would embrace who we are. It is not always easy to, to follow you, Father. And we get to live in a country which enjoys freedom to worship you. And yet it's still not always easy. Father, I pray for every single one of us that not only would we embrace who you are, who we are, and that we would also, in addition, demonstrate to the world who you are by serving them, by loving them, by praying for them, even those we may not like and who may not like us. And Father, in the end, may we sing, may we say with great clarity, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And all of God's people said, 
Amen.